0: I'm a criminologist. I'm not federal law enforcement. I don't work at crime scenes. I study the sociology of crime and justice in our country.
1: That's Caroline Sarnoff, and I'm Terrence Mickey, and this is An Extended Stay, which is Memory Motel's version of bonus material. A chance to linger, to hear one more story, to stay with an idea, theme, memory, or thought before traveling on to the next episode. We'll be sharing extended stays between episodes, and if you want to stay with Episode 5, Court of Memory, a bit longer, we present to you the bike incident. This is Caroline's memory.
0: You know, neither my brother nor my sister went to college, so it was a very big deal that I had not only decided to go to college, but chosen, you know, a pretty prestigious liberal arts college in Massachusetts. I felt very blessed and very sort of, like, thankful every day. I was very, like, cognizant of how special this moment in my life was. And when the whole thing with the bike happened, it became a very real possibility that it was going to all be taken away from me. I was a mental wreck. I was crying, like, constantly. Because I was sure that this, like, whole dream of my life was over. And I was so desperate to fix it. Just can and I just can't remember. I can't remember. I remember even. I do remember he said this. He said, Those
1: stories were the essence of it like what it was to be alive.
0: Was can you trust that? Is that light
1: always on? The trouble started when the campus police questioned her about a bike stored in the basement of her dorm.
0: Another student who lived in my dorm had placed her bike in the basement and had not locked it. And it had gone missing. My name came up. There was a witness who said she saw me take the bike and ride it around campus. I didn't take the bike. I had no involvement in it.
1: After the first meeting with campus police, they asked her to stop by the office and provide an official statement.
0: So I remember I was, like, actually excited. I was, like, really happy to, like, be interacting with law enforcement, you know, because I didn't do anything wrong. I was, like, amped on this.
1: Amped for questioning by law enforcement is only something an aspiring criminologist would say. But Caroline's excitement quickly turned into anxiety when the reality of the situation sunk in.
0: I remember handling the situation all wrong. I was super awkward and weird and sweaty. And I remember thinking in my head, like, why are you acting like this? Like, get a hold of yourself. But I I was freaked out the minute I walked in there.
1: After Caroline's conversation with campus police, they returned to her dorm room again.
0: That's when they told me, like, someone saw you taking the bike. Just tell us what you did. You know, it's, like, not the end of the world. You're fine, but you need to, like, own up to this now. Like, you're caught. And that's basic interrogation technique, right? Getting Confession 101. That's why people confess to things that aren't true. Like, the sooner you tell us what happens, the easier this is going to be for you. Because there's a lot of, just say you did it, Sign the piece of paper, and I will let you go home. So we went down to the basement, and we were looking through all of the bikes, and they said, well, show us where the bike was. Because they knew where the bike rack was, so they needed me to corroborate, you know, and to tell them I took it from that bike rack right there. I remember I, like, pointed to one bike rack, and they were like, hmm, are you sure that's where the bike was? Like, are you sure it wasn't going to be on one of these bike racks? And then I lied. I made up a story to get them off my back.
1: Anyone who's lied to tell a story knows it doesn't stop with one lie. Caroline pointed to another bike in the dorm basement and said,
0: Oh, actually, I rode that bike. At the time, I was like, this is so smart. Like, I'm going to just fix this all by telling these people, look, I did take a bike, but it's still here. It's right here. I mean, I was lying. They knew I was lying. I think they said, well, then why did you ride that bike? You know, that's illegal, too. That's not your bike. I said, oh, no, no, there's a girl, and we've talked. Oh, Okay, great, can we have her name? Mm, I'm not sure I know her name. You know, it's like the lies just keep going. So now it's like it's totally obvious to them that I am deceptive. That's when I saw it, like, it's all over. Like, my world is about to come crashing down. I'm totally in big trouble here. And then it, like, goes up the chain. And so it was the dean and the ombudsman and... They said, listen, you just got to, you have to pay her. You have to give the money for this bike. It's valued at $1,000. I said, I don't have $1,000. The college said, you know, we will lend you this money so you can pay it and make it all go away. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I said, all right, we're going to drop a promissory note and we'll attach it onto your tuition bill. Can you come back and sign it? I called my parents, I think for the first time. To them, it was like so clear that the situation had been super manipulative. And they said, don't you don't you dare sign that piece of paper. I don't know why they were letting you talk to grown men without a lawyer or your parents or some sort of advisor. Of course, they knew I was, you know, an aspiring criminologist and had never even like touched a beer in my life, let alone commit the heinous crime of like stealing a bike. So it was like Columbus Day weekend or something. They said, come, just come home. And her parents somehow got my parents' phone number and started calling our house and leaving voice messages for my parents saying, you do not know your daughter. She is lying to you. She's deceptive. This is a matter of integrity. You need to send us the money for this bike. And I heard these calls and it was like really stressful to me. And I lived in the dorm. I knew who she was. I was going to have to go back and see her. So they let me stay home for four days or so, and I've only fainted once in my entire life. And boarding the plane, walking on the jet bridge to board the plane home, I fell flat down face front. My body was physically like, you are not ready to go back to this situation. So I stayed in Kansas, I think for like another week.
1: With the help of her parents and time away, Caroline returned to campus ready to face the dean.
0: I came back to campus and I went back to public safety and I went back to the dean and I said I did not take the bike. I lied about borrowing the one in the basement. That never happened. I'm not going to sign the promissory note for the loan. And that's that. At that point, I think the college was just like, I am so over this. And the public safety was like, I am over this. And they just like
1: dropped it. But it didn't end there.
0: And then I got served. Uh, She sued me. So then it goes to small claims court. And my parents are in Kansas, so they're not going to fly up to this. But of course, she shows up with, like, her mom and her dad and her attorney. And they call the witness, the girl who saw me ride the bike. And the judge says, okay, can you tell us what you saw? And she said, yes, I saw Caroline go into the basement and bring it up. It was a canary yellow cruiser bicycle with a big basket, and I saw her ride it all around campus. And then there was like a bunch of shuffling and awkwardness, and the judge says, okay, we're going to stop right here. Can you show us the bike in question? And the bike in question was a teal, brand new road bike nothing like what the witness had claimed she had seen me take and ride and so basically the judge just said to the girl who accused me and to the witness you know this is i think he might have said like you're crazy you know he was like you guys you know this is like you've wasted my time you wasted the court time this poor woman here has been dealing with this case dismissed um and that was the end of it You know, but then I had to see her all the time. So, like, I read this paperwork, and I feel like they're trying to, like, frame a guilty girl. Like, they really thought that I took this bike. So their paperwork and their the way they wrote down our conversations and what happened, you know, they use this language that's very manipulative about my actions and where I was and questions. So that's more what I look back at it now and think, you know, probably almost every police report looks like that because they feel very strongly about it. And and there's such pressure on police to close cases quickly and efficiently that when they have a strong lead... You know, they have to go with it. They don't really have the option of second-guessing themselves or dilly-daddling. Like, they have to move forward with that case. In their defense, they had a witness. I mean, someone had come forward and told them that they saw me take this bike. So, I mean, they're going to feel pretty confident that I am just lying. As someone who, like, studies false confessions, studies eyewitness testimony that's incorrect, like, I look back on it, and it's, you know, it's this, like, tiny example of what happens every day in our criminal justice system. It's, like, the trifecta of, of stuff that can go wrong and, and criminal justice, the, the pressure to plea. I issued a false confession under duress, and then I had an eyewitness who didn't see what she thought she saw.
1: Caroline is now the Assistant Director of Data Outreach at Measures for Justice, which is the first organization to initiate and implement a series of performance measures to assess the whole criminal justice process from beginning to end, from arrest to post-conviction on a county-by-county basis. It allows all the stakeholders, the victims, judges, prosecutors, police, to see the criminal justice system through its own data in an effort to correct errors, biases?
0: Well, you know, we're having a moment right now in our country, right? Every day there is a new story or a new headline about criminal justice. And if you notice, more and more of them are calling for data they want statistics they want to know exactly what's happening they want to know how many uses of excessive force by nypd they want to know how many um, shootings by cops a year you know and there's just so you look at all these headlines and there's always something about data so measures for justice whole thing is like listen without data there cannot be change so our goal is just to collect as much case-level data, you know, every single arrest in a county, every single case outcome over a period of five years. And when you get so much data, you're able to really zoom out and get a nice macro view of what's happening in a criminal justice system on the county level. Because, you know, justice in our country happens at the county level. There are a lot of well-intentioned people working in this field, but the stakes are so high And they are so overburdened and under-resourced that the last thing that they have time or energy to do is to analyze their own racial disparity data. Like, someone else has to help with that. We can't just keep tasking these agencies with this. We can task them with fixing it. You know, you can show someone a problem and then say, okay, it's on you now to fix it.
1: This ability for the criminal justice system to see itself through data, to see where it's effective and where it needs to reform, has never been possible before.
0: There are counties that have come to us wanting to discuss racial disparity in their policing and charging practices, and we've been able to show them that it's there. It's maybe not as bad as they thought it was, or maybe it's worse than they thought it was, but so there's also one county that... For the last seven years, has been working to eliminate any charging disparity in drug paraphernalia cases. And we measured them, and they have a zero, they have zero disparity. And the state average is, you know, 1.8 times more likely if you are non white to be sentenced to incarceration. So that this county has been able to get this to zero just by knowing about it is really, really impressive. If you can see what the problem is, then you can try and change
1: it. Thank you for listening to our extended stay. A big thank you to Caroline Sarnoff and Measures for Justice. If you want to learn more about the organization, please visit our website memorymotel.audio. And as always, please reach out to us on Twitter at Memory Motel or at Terrence underscore Mickey. A special thanks to Chris McLeod for the extra help on the extended stay. You can listen to his podcast, The Mix on iTunes. And thank you to the Memory Motel team. Until next time, I can't wait to see what you find when you go back.